As usual, for those of you who stay past the credits at the end of the episode, we have something very special planned. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Song Freedom. When you need to legally license music for your short film, wedding, corporate, or other event video, from indie artists to top 40 pop artists like Maroon 5 and Imagine Dragons, go to songfreedom.com and use the offer code RADIO to get one song credit that can be used for any silver or gold commercial or standard license, which can be worth up to $199. That's songfreedom.com and use the offer code RADIO. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. We have a launch detection. We have a Soviet launch detection. Bemuse confirmed a massive attack. That's a clip from 1983's box office hit War Games, starring Matthew Broderick, Ali Sheedy, and everyone's favorite jerk in the 80s, Dabney Coleman. It was the height of the Reagan era and the Cold War, and in the movie, a temperamental chess program on steroids nearly sends the U.S. government into a global thermonuclear war. All because he wanted to play a game. All right, flush the bombers, get the subs in launch mode. We are at DEFCON 1. DEFCON 1. This sets up a perfect analogy for some serious marital advice I'm about to give. And trust me, as usual, I will make the filmmaking connection. For all you engaged couples out there, listen up closely. There are essentially two types of fights you can get into when you're married or any kind of long-term relationship. There are DEFCON 4 fights and DEFCON 1 fights. Very rarely do you ever have anything in between. As the name suggests, a DEFCON 4 fight is one of those regular, run-of-the-mill disagreements that elevates into maybe a loud voice or a stern look. Nothing too serious. If one of you is woman or man enough, you may be able to kiss, make up, and even make love within an hour or so, or maybe even sometime later that evening. A DEFCON 1 fight, however, is a whole other level of engagement. That's one of those dragged out, neither party wants to back down, toe-to-toe, ready-to-go-to-blows kind of fights. It's the, you're going to be sleeping on the sofa for the foreseeable future kind of fight. It's the, what in the world did I ever see in you kind of fight. They are not fun. As of this recording, I've been married for just over 13 years. And we've had our fair share of DEFCON 4 and 1 arguments. But a few years ago, we had one of the worst DEFCON 1 arguments in the history of our business. I mean, it was bad. And would you believe my beloved and I, the woman to whom I pledged eternal devotion, were escalated to DEFCON 1, wait for it, over a drop shadow. You heard me right. We had one of the worst fights ever over a visual effect for a font. Now, if you're a creative artist and you're married to someone like an accountant or engineer or a gastrologist or something like that, man, you have life easy. Why? Because you're in a situation where neither one of you knows too much about what the other person does. So you respect that fact and you can willingly subordinate your position on the matter to your spouses. Half the things you can fight about are off the table. But if both you and your spouse are artists, then my friend, you have just exponentially increased both the probability and the potency of your marital battle engagements. And heaven forbid if you're both visual artists, and heaven forbid two times, and God help you if you're a filmmaker and the other is a photographer, which just so happens to have been our situation. See, at the time, my wife was a professional photographer and she did teen portraits, specifically teen girls. And we did this fantasy-themed photo shoot, you know, like Amazonian women warriors and the like. Her studio was about empowering teen girls, and so that was the genesis for this particular theme. And I had uh, written, shot, and produced a short video to go along with the photo shoot theme. 
Now, since I'm the video guy in the family, I just assumed that I will get final say on the look and feel of the video. Uh, that was my first mistake. I'm also the sci-fi and fantasy geek in the house, so it stands to reason that I would have final say on all the fantasy elements. You guessed it, mistake number two. So I was making this title sequence for the video where I had this low angle, slow motion shot through the trees as sunbeams pierced through the trees like golden rapiers and sun flares frolicked through the borders of my lens like angels of light. It was beautiful. Yes, I know it's cliche, but trust me, it was very cool. I had the drop shadow on the titles kind of track along with the sun. You see what I'm saying? Can you picture it? It was tracking along with the sun. And let me just say, it took a freaking long time to get that effect to work the way I wanted it to work. And I'm mad enough and mature enough to admit that that just might have contributed to my stubbornness and steadfastness during the aforementioned DEFCON 1 argument. But I was going for like a real Lord of the Rings look, you know? You know what I mean? Like, if it's good enough for Peter Jackson, it's good enough for me. Well, I should specify, if it's good enough for Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson is good enough for me. I'm not too sure I'd be too keen on Hobbit Peter Jackson's take on anything. Anyway, my wife just wasn't feeling it. Drop shadows are tacky. Because if you look at design that people created in the 80s or the 90s, they used drop shadows because there weren't as many options for fonts and there weren't as many options for what you could do with design. There wasn't hand lettering that was happening. And so that's what a drop shadow was to give it an extra design feel. But we're talking about 2012, 2011 when this happened and drop shadows were had gone the way of Comic Sans font and hey, that's didn't, a low blow. didn't, didn't have any place in any of the work that I was doing. I loved the video you created and the, the way that the movie itself came out. So I guess advice that I would give for any couples or creatives who are working together is to clarify your roles and ownership of the project. Of course, I still loved you. Didn't mean I liked you during the times that we were having the discussion. Like I said, this was a bad one. Naturally, I can laugh about it now, but no way would I have joked about this that night or even the next day. It, it would just be too soon. Alan Alda's character in Crimes and Misdemeanors explains it best. Uh, at Harvard, a bunch of kids asked me, what, what's comedy? So I said, and, and this, this is part of what I'm trying to say about getting back from it. I, I said, comedy is tragedy plus time. Tragedy plus time. See, when the night Lincoln was shot, you couldn't joke about it. You couldn't make a joke about that. He just couldn't do it. Now time has gone by, and now it's fair game. Man, how true is that statement, time. right? I mean, think about it. What was the last funny anecdote you heard, not including the one I just told you? Or the last one that you told? I bet you a million dollars it was tied to yours and or somebody else's pain, suffering, or unfortunate setback. Think about last week's Short Ends episode about mishaps on film sets. If you haven't heard it yet, check it out, Plan E from Outer Space. Both of the stories told were funny now, but not so much so at the time that they had happened to their respective storytellers, Sam Messman and Ryan Connolly. This dynamic between tragedy and comedy is why comedians make some of the best dramatic actors. Jim Carrey, Jamie Foxx, Will Smith, Steve Martin, Michael Keaton, Bill Murray. I can go on and on listing comedian after comedian who has turned an Oscar-worthy dramatic performance. You can take it all the way back to Charlie Chaplin in his 1921 film The Kid. This concept of two diametrically opposed ideas, tragedy and comedy, being so intricately connected is really fascinating. Two things that seem to be polar opposites are in many ways codependent. 
I propose to you, my fellow filmmaking friends, that if you can unlock the secret of that dynamic and truly comprehend that unique relationship between tragedy and time, pain and posterity, you will elevate the quality of your work dramatically. So today, we're going to explore that theme. And as a case study, we're going to hear the story of how four unlikely partners, three hip-hop artists, two epic failures, and one ulcer led to me becoming a filmmaker. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School. The year was 1990, and I was an undergraduate business major at UC Berkeley. The music scene was bustling that year. Wilson Phillips and In Vogue both urged you to hold on. Sinead O'Connor let you know that nothing compares to you. Belle Biv DeVoe warned you about that poisonous girl. And ladies with an attitude and fellows that were in the mood were voguing to Madonna's club classic from San Fran to Manhattan. Yeah, music was huge. And 1990 was the beginning of a decade that would be a defining era in hip-hop. Names like Digital Underground, House of Pain, Kid and Play, Criss Cross, Boys to Men, TLC were blowing up the airwaves. And I was this close to becoming the next Rick Rubin or Russell Simmons. And by this close, I mean about as close as Beijing is to Boston. That summer, I embarked upon a business venture, which at the time was a harrowing experience. A defining time in a young, would-be hip-hop mogul's life. It was the summer before my senior year at Berkeley. I had taken a semester off school to work full-time as a financial analyst. By this time, I was earning about $14 an hour. Now, keep in mind that's $1990. Do you know how much money $14 an hour full-time is to a 21-year-old single college guy who lived on $2 Blondie's Pizza and Kellogg's Raisin Brand? It was a lot. I was practically a millionaire. I was also somewhat of a clubber, you know, a dance clubber. I'd go out to dance clubs every weekend and do my thing. I might not look it now, but I was pretty smooth on the dance floor back in my day. One of my fellow clubbers was Biscuit. Now, that's not his real name, but that's what he called himself, as in grab him in the biscuits. Google it. Anyway, how do I describe this guy? Let me see. He was he was a tall, lanky brother with a really bad Jerry girl, like one of those bad conks that where you conk your hair and it doesn't quite look like it's supposed to look. Anyway, his most defining characteristic, though, he and this is weird. He had a fetish for <laughs> he had a fetish for Asian girls, and he would use a fake British accent to pick them up. I kid you not, I can't make this stuff up. Well, now I've seen everything. So one night at a college frat party, <laughs> sorry, I I swear that was the truth. So one night at a college frat party, all right, I gotta compose myself. So one night, you see, this is what happened. This is the whole tragedy plus time thing. So one night at a college frat party that we had crashed, he introduces me to this young blonde named Stephanie. She was an emancipated minor and had quite a bit of chutzpah for a 16-year-old. They then both introduced me to someone who I'll call Billy D. Now, I call him that because that's who he looked like, or rather that's what he tried to look like. Picture a short Lando Calrissian in a three-piece suit. A cheap three-piece suit. That was Billy D. 
You know those people who are always talking about stuff they got, but you never see any of the stuff they're always talking about that they got? That was this dude. Now, apparently, Billy D and Biscuit had quote-unquote discovered an amazing rap group at Oakland called Shadow Soul, or SOS for short. They needed a management company, and Billy and Biscuit wanted the four of us to be that company. We saw SOS perform at Laura Sproul Plaza later in the week, and they were truly amazing. We were going to be the next Def Jam. Now, take a minute to sit back and imagine this motley crew. You got Biscuit and his fake British accent. You got wannabe Billy D. You got me, the relatively straight-laced business major. And you have Stephanie. Can you not already see the movie forming in your brain? And what do we decide to call our new hip-hop venture? Atlantis Entertainment. What in the world were we thinking? Why didn't we just call it Titanic Entertainment or Hindenburg Beats or something? All those names were harbingers for what was to come. We'll return to the story in the final segment of the show. But first, I have something very special to share with you. My daughter is quite a remarkable young lady. She always has been. Whenever the kids her age were gaga over beautiful vampire boys with diamond reflective skin, she was reading S. He Hinton and Louisa May Alcott. She had read Little Women three or four times over by the time she was 14. For like, fun. She's a quadruple threat. Intelligent, a talented musician, a gifted actor, and beautiful. A key part of her beauty stems from her racial background. Her mom, my wife, is blonde and green-eyed. Her biological dad is African-American. So, like most biracial people, she has the best of both worlds. It was actually pretty cool when her mom and I got married because the natural assumption was that she was my biological daughter. About five years ago, I had taken her and my son, her half-brother, out on our weekly father outing. I would take the kids out to give my introverted wife a much-needed break from her ADD husband and daughter and her very active little boy. It was during lunch at McDonald's on one of these outings when I asked her what she thought of Chris Rock's documentary, Good Hair. I had given her the DVD to watch. It's a hilarious look at the provocative topic in the African-American community, this concept of quote-unquote good hair. What's your definition of good hair? Somebody looks relaxed and nice. If your hair is relaxed, white people are relaxed. If your hair is nappy, they're not happy. This October, Chris Rock will take you back to your roots. Just yesterday, my daughter came into the house and said, Daddy, how come I don't have good hair? I wonder how she came up with that idea. Like, I didn't understand weaves and stuff like that until I watched Good Hair with Chris Rock. And then I was like, wow, that's like really big part of the African-American community. And I, and I didn't understand that. That's an excerpt from my interview I conducted with her nearly a year after that fateful lunch at Mickey D's. You see, I was so engrossed and captivated hearing my then 15-year-old daughter talk about her experiences as a young black girl being raised by a white mom, it was killing me that I didn't have a camera on her. So I committed to shooting a documentary about her experience. It was to be called Mixed in America, Stories of Race Relations and Identity in the Proverbial Melting Pot. I was excited and on fire to make this documentary. 
I don't think I even remember the first time that I realized that I was different than my mom. I can't imagine what it was like for my mom being single and having um, a black daughter. That's the opening to the trailer that I put together. I wanted this documentary to be different. I didn't want it to be a traditional head and shoulders style documentary. So I only recorded audio of my daughter for the interview. That would force me to create reenactments and narrative B-roll. I recorded that original interview with her in January of 2011. I released the trailer about a week or so later. Then came to actually start shooting the film later that spring. And that, my friends, is where tragedy struck. Or rather, teen angst. I'm sitting with Imani. The subject of Mixed in America that I started shooting or recorded the interview January 2011, I think. You were 16? Four years ago, I was 16. That was me and my daughter, Imani, in the car right before I was about to shoot the last few shots of the film. I was bright-eyed and excited about doing this project. And like two weeks after recording the audio, I even threw together like a trailer. Like, I was on... That was... You were on top of I was on fire. I was on fire. I was like, this is getting done. It's now <laughs> summer 2015. What happened, Imani? What happened? You know what happened? This past August 2015, I finally shot the B-roll for that film. There were a lot of reasons that went into why it took so long. It wasn't just my temperamental teen, who's now 20 by the way. Over the next few episodes of Radio Film School, I will share with you the journey that led up to this point, coinciding with the final release of the film. When I was little, my mom gave me the nickname Little Sunshine, and I asked her why she gave me that nickname, and she said it was because I was the brightest thing in her life. Deadbeat, love fire. Rain clouds and nightmares and twinkling star. Hell no, I'm not coming back. Hell no, I'm not coming back. And we'll get to the answer of the question. What happened, Imani? What happened? I'm calling this segment Shooting Sunshine. If you've ever put off shooting a project for an inordinate amount of time, or if there is some project right now you still haven't shot, you won't want to miss this story. That's next time on the show, so be sure to subscribe. In the meantime, if you want to see the four-and-a-half-year-old trailer, you can find it on the blog post for this episode at daredreamer.fm. The past is gone and the future's unknown. God give me freedom or nothing at all Cause hello, I'm not coming back I'm sure that it happened a lot with her where people would look at her differently or... Um, she gave up everything, like she wouldn't let anyone in my life who wouldn't accept me for who I was. And if, and if they wouldn't accept me, then she wouldn't be around them, and she wouldn't let me be around them. She would only let people who accepted me and loved me be around me, and I really, really appreciate that. I mean, she's why I am who I am today. listen carefully. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It takes a lot to keep a show like this going. 
One way we're able to sustain and keep up the good fight is through sponsorships. Now I know many of you hate commercial interruptions. I get that. But know that my goal will be to make many if not most of the sponsor segments either entertaining and or educational. One sponsor I want to really thank is songfreedom.com. As you know, licensing legal music for your productions can be challenging, especially for many of you just starting out and learning about this whole license thing. Song Freedom gives you the ability to choose from perhaps the most diverse variety of music for your licensing needs. They're the only site where you can license mainstream top 40 artists like Maroon 5, Colby Calais, Imagine Dragons, LMFAO, and more. They even have iconic songs from the likes of Frank Sinatra and The Temptations. All of those kind of songs are cleared for all you personal event filmmakers, shooting weddings, bar mitzvahs, etc. But they also have a huge selection of indie, techno, pop, R&B, and hip-hop, as well as dramatic cinematic scores and sweeping ethereal instruments. If you want to elevate your production value of your films with amazing music that's legal to use, then go check out songfreedom.com. Use the offer code RADIO and you'll get one free song credit for use for any silver or gold level license for standard or commercial use. That could be as much as $199 value. That's songfreedom.com, offer code RADIO. We thank them for their support. Okay, let's pick up where we last left off. Where was I? Oh yeah, the ill-fated and premonitionally named Atlantis Entertainment. Man, I know that I could make it, well I think. Cause I see success before my very eyes, but then I blink. But I think that I know just one day that some way I'ma make it. Sometimes I just don't think that I could take it. They say, yeah, that, that don't kill you, make you stronger. I don't even know where to start when it comes to describing my experiences with this group. I could start with the events of Davidson Hall. That was the dormitory on the Berkeley campus where we and our rat group met with another rat group from Oakland. I don't even really remember why. Anyway, one of the members of our rat group said something that pissed off one of the members of this other rap group, and a fight broke out. Like full-blown gang warfare. I'm talking Crips versus Bloods, East Coast versus West Coast, Jets versus Sharks. I literally thought I was going to die. I remember at the time thinking, I'm not from the hood, I'm a doctor's kid, I'm not properly trained for this. Remember, I was more like a Carlton than a Crip. Luckily, I didn't die. But that fight was just the beginning. One of the biggest problems we had was that Biscuit and Billy D were straight up posers. Billy D acted like he had money, but he didn't, and Biscuit was too busy talking. So all the money for anything we needed came from either me or Stephanie, who was the only other person in our group who actually had a job. Our big day was going to be the unveiling of SOS to the world. We organized a dance to be held in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, where SOS would perform. Let's just say our marketing efforts failed horribly. This was before the days of Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr. This was even before email was a popular thing. We had to make signs on these things called flyers. They were made out of this uh, material called paper. And you'd print a whole bunch of these rectangular flyer things, use this metallic adhesive device called a stapler, and then post the flyers on these thingies all around town called telephone poles. Anyway, we didn't make enough money to pay the DJ or the bouncers that we hired that night, because like only 20 people showed up. Let me just say, you don't want to piss off 6 foot 4 inch guys who look like the mountain from Game of Thrones and sound like Rocky Balboa. So I had to dip into my hard earned money to pay these guys. Due to the stress of dealing with bouncers, battling rappers, and wannabe hip-hop moguls, I started to develop stress-related stomach disorders. Basically an ulcer. I, I just had to stop. So I told the group that I was quitting. The last event that I remember us having was a dance to kick off our plans to run our own nightclub. 
We rented, or rather, they rented, a nightclub in the city. The name of the club was Das Club. It was the dance spot in San Francisco during my time at Berkeley. Unfortunately, the popularity of the club itself did nothing for the poser's marketing efforts. I think about six people showed up that night. But as I danced the night away on that empty dance floor, I remember being at peace and laughing inside that I was able to evacuate Atlantis before it completely sank into the ocean. I'ma make it. Sometimes I just don't think that I could take it. They say yeah, that that don't kill you, make you stronger. Patience is a virtue and all that ish. But I don't know if I could wait much longer. It'd probably be easier if I just quit. And I know. And I was at a lunch at Denny's with a friend in Saratoga, California, where I had my aha moment. You see, I had just recounted to her the story of the lost artist management company of Atlantis. The exact story I just told you. A story too painful to laugh at when it happened, but now that time had passed, the pain began to show promise. And as I told the story, and she and I laughed at the utter insanity of it all, I blurted out, man, this would make such a funny movie. The rest, as they say, is history. So, my fellow filmmaking friends, what have we learned from all of this? Well, first and foremost, make sure you pick the right partners in business, life, art, or marriage. But the second and perhaps more poignant lesson can best be described by Gandalf. I referenced Lord of the Rings earlier this episode when talking about the great drop shadow debacle. So, let's turn to Lord of the Rings now for today's moral. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. There may be something you're going through right now that's got you down. It could be a family issue, money problems, problems at work, or some other stress-inducing incident. Rest in the knowledge that one, this time too shall pass. Two, that maybe, just maybe, there is a greater purpose to that pain. And three, know that it will probably make a magnificent movie. And you're just the person to tell it. Radio Film School is a production of Daredreamer FM, resources for the creative professional to grow in their craft and career. Go to daredreamer.fm slash join right now and become a member for a monthly price less than a cup of Starbucks coffee. Every month you'll get bonus audio content from our podcast, as well as templates, ebooks, and members-only goodies. I really want to thank everyone who has reached out to leave a review for the show in iTunes. I was so excited to see that we hit number one in our category. And we were there for a couple of days before we were knocked off by Petapixel. For those of you who haven't already done so, go out and leave a review right now and see if we can't get back to that number one spot. Thank you so very much. It takes a lot of work to put a show like this together. And the best way to keep it going is to let us know that you like it and you want to keep it. So please, take those few minutes and go leave that five-star rating and comment in iTunes. 
This episode was written and produced by me, Ryan Dawson, with production help from Crystal Sun, Lucas Randall Owens, Tommy Ferguson, and Chris Husledge. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org and Kevin McLeod's Incompetech.com. Links to artists and tracks are in the show notes and blog posts for this episode. We at Daredreamer FM are committed to helping filmmakers and artists remove the barriers to creating their art. One of those barriers is finding quality music to legally use in your productions. That's why every week we pick five songs from Free Music Archive and share those curated picks with our email subscribers and blog readers. But admittedly, the music we pick has a more eclectic feel. There are times when you need a more traditional and mainstream tune. That's why we're excited about our partnership with Song Freedom. Currently, they're the only site where you can license mainstream music like Maroon 5, Colby Calais, Imagine Dragons, LMFAO, and more. Songs like that have been cleared to use in personal event videos like weddings, bar mitzvahs, etc. So let's say you have a wedding client who insists on using Best Day of My Life for that video you're producing for her, or wants to use Party Rock Anthem for the reception segment. You can now do so legally and for as little as 50 bucks. Or let's say you're producing a podcast and you need a really cool oldies but goodies tune like, oh, I don't know, My Girl by The Temptations. With Song Freedom's podcast license, you can do that legally now too. And more songs are being added all the time. And to let it known fact that Song Freedom has a huge library of indie artists as well. And here's the best part. Go to songfreedom.com and use the offer code RADIO and you'll get a free song credit that you can use for any silver or gold standard or commercial license. That can be worth up to $199. We thank Song Freedom for their support of the show. Show them your support of our support by visiting songfreedom.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with another short ends episode, then the week after for the continuation of our filmmaker's journey. Until then, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. I'm out. It's bonus segment time. So you'll recall last episode, I made allusions to this segment called How to Be a Black Filmmaker in the 90s. It's a segment of the show where my buddy JD and I get into topics that relate to our experiences working together on short films in the 90s. Here's the genesis of that idea and JD's reaction. Enjoy. Are you sure you have your headphones on because I'm still hearing my echo? Maybe, uh... Yeah, I have it on. All right. Anyway, let me. You know, hold on. Let me. Um, let me see if I could turn off the speak my uh, computer speakers. Oh, yeah. I still they... hear you coming through the speakers. Well, yeah. You got to change the output of. Um... <laughs> That'll help, right? Yeah. Well, you know what? I put it in. You know what? Hold on. I, I could hear my output. Almost. You ready to go? Almost. Uh, yeah. I'm there. I'm with yeah. you. So uh, is the, that better? For, for the people listening, this is like you know, this is what I have to deal with when I'm working with JD. Like, <laughs> What's up, y'all? What's cracking? <laughs> uh, hey, so I want to run this idea by you. Okay. <laughs> I okay. Want to, I want to know Sorry. What? Why, why are you laughing? Because I'm curious to think what you're going to think about it. Okay. All right. So, so you know, the show is going to have different segments, right? Yeah. Okay. So one of the segments is going to be how to be a black filmmaker in the 90s. Oh, my God. I don't know why. Why I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know what what makes you. Uh, <laughs> what's the appeal of that? <laughs> why is it so funny? <laughs> I don't know. Because it's all right. So the the answer to your first question to the the appeal is 
Because a lot of the stories we've been talking about was like go back to like what got me thinking about it was when you were like teasing me about wearing cross colors when we were yeah. talking last time. Mm-hmm. And so like the show is gonna have different aspects. So there's like the main crux, which is cinematic, which is like developing your signature style, and there will be like war stories will be one segment, and then movie memories, and all the interviews that I do with guests. You know, one interview might have have excerpts that will go into each segment. So, uh, a lot of the conversation that you and I've had so far have harkened back to like when I was first starting out and when we did stuff together, and you know some of the, you know, the crazy antics we went through as we were doing our stuff, and it reminded me of a um, a blog post I did a couple of years ago. A, a satirical blog post they did for, um, uh, you know, like Black History Month, called mm-hmm. "How to Be How to Be a Black Filmmaker," and it was it was basically like a satire on stereotypes of what it means to be a quote unquote black filmmaker. Um, so after our conversation last time, I was thinking to have a funny segment about how to be a black filmmaker in the '90s. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, it's just a segment, right? You're not like... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's not the whole show. It's a segment. <laughs> I was like, damn, man. It's a whole... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It, no, so like... And I haven't 100% figured out like how, how the logistics are going to work. But like each episode, like the, the, the core of the show, the cinematic core of the show where I'm on this journey to find out what it means to have a signature style, that would be like the bulk of every episode. And then towards the end, there will be like a short segment about movie memories where people will talk about um, like their earliest childhood memories from movies. And then every now and then we'll have a segment like the war story segment. Um, and then and then, you know, this had to be a black film segment. But all these segments would be, you know, some of them may be in the middle. So like the movie memory ones may be kind of like spice throughout the middle, like little commercials to kind of break up the, the main piece. And the war stories one may be towards the end, or maybe there'll be a large chunk of one. And these, you know, how to be a black filmmaker in the nineties will most likely be like post credits, like or excerpt excerpts from our conversations will be in the main parts, but when we're like when we're specifically talking about some of the some of our onset antics or some of the experiences we had, or if we're talking about you know, some of the things that kind of that I think fit into that category. Right. It'll be in that segment. And that segment will usually be saved towards the end. That's sort of like a bonus segment. Like, you know, you stay past the credits, you can hear this funny story about basically like a funny anecdote about, you know, when I was first starting out. Right. I don't even know if that's necessarily being a black filmmaker in the 90s, though, because it's all about marketing, of- dude. I know it's not about being a black filmmaker, but I'm, I'm talking about the stuff that specifically retains to like the cultural aspect of. Because, like, for instance, when you and I were talking about acting and you were making the comment about, you know, a director telling an actor what to do, like, that's not that's not a conversation I would put in that segment. But, like, when we were talking about, like, clowning on the set or if we're talking about maybe specific um, challenges that, you know, I may have had or we may have had as, you know, you know African-Americans of color or people of color or if we're talking about, you know... You know, Spike Lee's movies back then, stuff like that. Something that's really mm-hmm. specific or germane to that topic. Yeah, yeah, it, it sounds cool. Um, <laughs> I don't have any. I don't have any. I mean, 
use it however you want. I just don't know if I, if my mind would be capable of, you know, week in, week out. Okay, here's what it is to be a black filmmaker in the no, 90s. When I first came to, like, you and Yolanda about the idea you were doing this, too. Like, like don't put so much specificity, like, into, like, the titles or anything. So it's not like, okay, every time we talk, you need to speak to that. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not what it's about. It's like, we're going to talk about whatever. Like, Ron, I just came from Al Sharpton's, and we were marching <laughs> about black filmmakers back in. I was recalling the time we went to Birmingham to speak on black filmmaking. It's like, you know, uh, you know I can't. For, for me personally, like the thing that that appeals to me about like uh, like podcasting is I don't even, I almost don't even want to deal with it in terms of filmmaking. It's like to me the stuff that's more that 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 seems more uh, like like I don't really get. And I'm not. This isn't a side or anything. I just sure. don't get what you do. I don't understand. Like, like the event, uh, uh, film, uh, video, filmography. Uh, uh -huh. uh, I mean, event filmography and, and videography, and working with companies and corporate thing. I, I, that's just you know. I, that's a space that I don't really understand that well. And, and in terms of podcasts, the ones that I listen to are very. Uh, they're very broad. Like so which it, ones do you listen to? And I don't listen to many. <laughs> I listen to <laughs> I listen to well, well, I should say podcasts and shows because okay. shows I really love. Like I really love John Stewart. Uh, okay. I'm like heartbroken that he's leaving. I think John Oliver. So you're talking a, about his TV show. But it could be a yes. But it, it's very. I mean, it, um, but I like podcasts are similar like that. They you know they pick up on the topics of the day, the things that are going on. They're culturally relevant, and then speak on it. I'm just attracted to those type of things. But I don't know. I'm, I'm already babbling. So yeah, I, I, yeah, that's all right. You, I'm used to it. But hey, so I hear what you're saying. <laughs> but you asked those open ass into questions like, <laughs> hey, JD, is there racism in Hollywood? <laughs> Answer it. Respond any way you like. <laughs> then I go on a 50-minute diatribe. <laughs> but to the extent that they go into topics that kind of relate to that 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 um, cultural aspect, because because filmmaking is personal, right? And so when you have something as personal as your cultural perspective on something, it's going to be seen. Uh, a lot of times, it's going to be seen in your artwork. And or issues you have with regards to, you know, you know, making it in this business as it relates to your race is going to be seen in this artwork. And and you think about satires like, you know, the kind of stuff that like the the wines do. Um, um, the Wayans. The Wayans, right? Sorry. <laughs> I was like BB and CC Wine, like, <laughs> right? They're in the filmmaking now, <laughs> right? No, not the gospel singers. The Wayans. Is it Wayans or Wines? Wayans. Wayans. Wayans, yeah. So the way the ones that the Wayans do and or you think about like Hollywood Shuffle, which was, you know, in the nineties. You know, those were satires that like you didn't have to be black to watch those and appreciate them and laugh at them, right? And even and so that's the kind of thing. It's like when people are seeing like I want this show to be more than just the traditional interview uh podcast, because there's so many of those. And yeah. I've already done that and I don't want to do it again. Right, right. So you know, I just thought it was a fun segment. Yeah, um, I'm I'm cool with it. I mean, yeah, um, I, ha I have a feeling that we'll you'll have ample material to <laughs> right, kind of plug yeah. in there or whatever.